Thank you for your patience. Um, my name is Romy. Happy, happy to welcome you all to Spirit Rock. This is a very exciting day. It's a benefit for Spirit Rock and for Dr. Dan Siegel's organization. Happy to have you here this morning. I have a couple of announcements before we start. And the first thing I always like to do is thank the volunteers who came early this morning to set the chairs and light, light the candles. Yeah, they're lit. So if you see someone with a name tag, you can thank them for their service. If you'd like to volunteer in the future, we'd love to have you. Um, I just would like for you all to know we're live streaming streaming today, so there's uh, an audience at home, so um, know that. Um, let's see, who's new to Spirit Rock today? Wow, a lot of you. Okay, so I'll speak to you. Um, we have a couple of announcements to help you with your day, know what's going on, so here they go. Uh, first of all, CE credits, continuing education. Many of you may have CE credits. You should have signed in already and received a survey. If you did not sign in, you need to do that now. Here's the thing, CE people, don't forget to sign out or we can't give you your certificate. So please remember to do that at end of day. It's now time to turn off our cell phones. So lovely if we turn them off completely. And if you would like an assisted hearing device, we have some in the back, and you can pick one up now. You may want to know that we have water bottle fillers. Um, there's, some in the, there's one in the tea area. There's a sink between the, the teas. There's also water outside the restrooms. So if you need water today, that's where it is. We have snacks for purchase and tea for purchase, if you would like. We'd love for you to cover your cups, your teacups, just in case there's a spill. Uh, it helps uh, control that. We do... We do have lids for you. At lunchtime, you are welcome to... Oh, yeah, there is an outside event, but they'll be gone by then. You're welcome to eat outside. There's a beautiful meadow. There are picnic benches. If you're now thinking to yourself, oops, I didn't bring lunch. Um, Woodacre Deli is across Sir Francis Drake. I can give you directions. It's just across the street in Woodacre. Um, we will be ringing bells for you to come into the room. So if you hear a bell, it's probably time to come in from lunch or come in from a break. Um, this afternoon, you'll get a survey in your email box. If you have a couple minutes to fill out the survey in the next couple days, we appreciate it. And we do take your um, suggestions under advisement. And I think that's it. For my, oh, we have three events going on this morning, which was why it was a little busy this morning. So we have an event that's sold out upstairs. It's a writing event, an event outside, which is hiking in nature. So I'm going to ask you to stay downstairs today, which is okay because we have the bookstore. And speaking of bookstore, we have Dan's new book, which doesn't come out for a couple of days. So the books are still warm. They're, they're in their boxes. So if you'd like a book, you can visit the self-serve bookstore and know that we don't charge sales tax. So there's a little um, 
benefit for you. So now I'll introduce Dr. Siegel. As many of you may know, he's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine, and he's also the founding co-director of Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. And finally, or not finally, also um, among many, many other things, including being an author, he's the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. And if you'd like more information on that, you can check his website. We also have email address sign-up pieces of paper outside for you to neatly write your name. And... I mentioned we have his new book, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. And ironically, that's the name of today's event, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Thank you, Dr. Siegel. We're really looking forward to the day. Mm. Thank you, Romy. I had the book in my hand. I had the book in my hand the whole time. Uh Uh-oh, what do you need? Just want to turn this off. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Well, it's an honor to be here with all of you and an honor to be here uh, with Spirit Rock and for Spirit Rock. Um, Today, we're going to go on a journey together into the nature of being aware. And to do that, we'll do a number of things. We're going to talk about uh, some ideas from science and then dive deeply into some practices uh, and then explore what our direct first-person experience is in those practices and then come back to integrating the science together with some of the experiences that we've shared. And then we'll talk about a number of other things as we go. And then we'll have lunch. And then... (laughs) And then after lunch, we'll come back and we'll dive in even more deeply. Uh, and um, let me make sure that you're all in the right place. So this is the, uh, the exploration of awareness. Is that what everyone's here for? Great. So let me just check out with you. How many of you have a regular reflective practice, sometimes called meditation, um, that you do? Raise your hand really high. So it's almost everybody, but not everybody. Um, for those who are new to reflective practices... Um, it's a really interesting moment to be a human being because we have this incredible convergence of a long, long history of contemplative practices from a number of different traditions, including the ones represented here at Spirit Rock. And we have some exciting new ideas from both the direct empirical study of contemplative practices and also other studies not related directly to contemplation but related to science in general and the nature of reality that we'll try to weave together. So in many ways today is going to be a a tapestry that hopefully will take the threads of a number of different um, ways of understanding the world and being alive and being human and bringing them together. And the way I'd like to approach this um, is with a kind of strategy that my dear colleague and friend John O'Donohue, which is how you pronounce John O'Donohue when you're actually in Ireland. Um, And some of us were actually in uh, Ireland celebrating John's life. He passed away about 10 years ago. How many of you knew John? John O'Donohue. Or knew of his work, anyway, knew of his work. Yeah, so a few of us. Um, 
And, you know, John was a former Irish Catholic priest and a poet and a philosopher, and he was a mystic. And uh, John and I were doing a lot of work together. We were writing a book together, teaching a lot together, and then he suddenly died. And so I, I bring him up here because part of that journey with John was to see how you can make a bridge between two lands that never should have been separated, the land of spirituality and the land of science. And as John said, it was a marriage that never was dissolved. But they've been separated in contemporary times in a way that we'll explore that um, have really been, I think, to the detriment of everyone. And in some ways, waking up to the union of science and spirituality uh, is an opportunity to do a lot of healing on our planet. And whether it's about your individual life and you're here as an individual bringing your body here to see how you can work or your relationships with people close to you or your relationships with people in your community or your relationships with people in our larger humanity or your relationships with the planet. We have an opportunity to see how all these relationships actually shape the health of the world. Right? So um, I was driving in this morning with my good friend Paul Hawken, who's here, who, you know, has been a leader in thinking deeply. Everyone's going like this, Paul. Yay. Um, you know, who's been a leader in thinking deeply about the planet and about health. And uh, his last book, Drawdown, for example, is an incredibly beautiful and important work on what we are doing to try to create a, a healthier planet. Uh, and it's amazing when you think, ultimately, what a lot of that work on climate issues involves is the evolution of human culture, the evolution of how we communicate with each other, which is based on how we conceive of who we are. And as you'll see in the practices we're about to do, how we conceive who we are is dependent on this amazing process that the human brain goes through, which it takes energy patterns that come through it, and it quickly to organize itself in the world, categorizes things. And part of that categorization then becomes what you could call a concept. And then the concept gives rise to a linguistic symbol. And the linguistic symbol in terms that we use in our language becomes a way that we constantly recreate the nature of reality in our culture. And so we begin to perceive what we believe. And then, of course, our beliefs are reinforced by these perceptual filters called filters of consciousness that we don't even know we have. They're called implicit. They're not usually in our awareness. And then one of those ways this all happens in this cyclical way is with a four-letter word you may not even realize is such a serious fundamental issue, which is the letter S. E-L-F, self. And so we can begin today with the question of, like, what is that? What is the self? You brought this body that you're born into here, and that's true, you have a body. But why, really, since the time of Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, when he said, the mind and all your joys and sorrows are simply an output of your brain in your head. And therefore, the natural consequence is that 
who you are comes from either your head at one limited way or maybe even your skin encased body. But why would we put the self in a body? But we do. And you may say, well, of course the self is in your body. This is myself. I brought myself to Spirit Rock. Right? Or if you're not here and you're out in the virtual land, you know, you're watching, yourself is watching this thing. So it's an interesting issue. You know, it's a really interesting issue. Um, and part of that question is, of course, an intellectual one, but part of it is just a perceptual one. Because if you are perceiving things through these filters that you learn from the time you're born, then how do you actually experience life beneath and beyond and before those filters? And that's what we're going to explore right now. So in honor of John, John O'Donohue, uh, we are going to do this in a series of what John and I used to call blasts, like a blast of information. Then I'm going to pause, and then if there are any questions or points of clarification, then let's discuss them. Right? And so we can do this, you know, as, as a community here. Dan is here. We, we were in, uh, uh, in Admont together every two years. Dan and I, we, we, the two of us, oh, hi. The two of us would go every other year to this incredible place, Admont, in Austria. And there it was all about mediation, you know. And so we have wonderful mediators here, and we would dive into mediation and explore how the, the nature of who we are is shaped by mediation. Uh, there are other people in the room that I know, but you're probably all from many different disciplines of work or just journeys that you've been on. So whether you're in mediation or looking at meditation or climate issues, or we have a wonderful leader in the field of music here, we have all these ways where being human is affected by this word self. So we'll have these blasts, and then we'll take a pause, and then we're going to have time for questions after the blast. And if at any point there's a, a question, just as a clarification point, raise your hand then, because it's better to do it as it's going. And then we'll have time for experiential stuff. So the illustrations that you're going to see on these slides are all in the book, Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. And it's very exciting because a wonderful artist who's also a meditator, who also happens to be my daughter, Madeline Welch Siegel, she uh, is the one who did all these drawings. And so um, I had the opportunity of someone who saw me give a talk about this a couple years ago and then saw the book and said, you've really upped your game now with your daughter's drawings. I said, yeah, that's true. So we begin with our first blast, which is on the question of what is the mind. Now, some of you, how many of you have heard me give a talk before, just so I can get a feeling for it? So it's like about, looks like about less than a quarter. Okay, so three quarters of you knew this stuff. So this may seem really, really bizarre, and I want to apologize up front, because I'm going to say some things that actually are bizarre, um, they're so bizarre, and I'm such a doubting person that I had to ask this over and over and over again in a couple of fields. So in the field of mental health, I've asked the question, did anyone ever tell you what the mind is in the field of mind health? And I asked 100,000 mental health professionals in rooms like this, and they just recorded all the results. And I've asked about 20,000 K-12 through teachers who say their main job is to educate the mind. And I said, that's so beautiful. What were you told in your education that the mind is? And what percentage of, it's the same percentage, of mental health professionals were ever told what the mental 
of their profession is? Well, it's two, two percent. So it's close to zero then. It's two percent. Two to five percent is the range. So let's just say five percent just to be really conservative. So 95 percent of mental health professionals on this planet have never been told what the mind is. Now, how many of you think that's just a little strange? You know, this, is, this is like the, the, the test, see if you're awake. So it's a, little, it's a little weird. And it made me feel really bad. Now, we could spend a whole day on that, which we're not going to do. But the bottom line is, after a long line of reasoning and finding the same percentage among teachers, and then interviewing chair people of departments of psychiatry, psychology, and even philosophy of mind, there is no definition of the mind in any of those fields. None. There are descriptions. You know, the mind is feelings and thoughts and behavior related to the brain. Or the mind is brain activity. That's a very common descriptive statement. But if the mind is brain activity, let's drop the word mind and see how that goes. See if anyone minds that. And you can't. And you can't for a number of reasons we'll explore. But the first to say is that the mind for many people, like Gregory Bateson years ago, is a relational process. So an anthropologist or a linguist or a sociologist see the mind as embedded in culture and how we communicate with each other. And a neuroscientist, many of them, think that's ridiculous, that the mind is simply an output of the way neurons communicate with each other. And they usually don't talk to each other these fields. And there's a long story that I write about in a book, Mind, but the bottom line is, what if they're both right? What could be both within the brain and the body and between. And this illustration is a way of showing that. What is shared in the withinness and the betweenness of mind is energy and information flow. Flow just means change. Information is a pattern of energy with symbolic value, like saying the phrase spirit rock. That's a, that's a, a bunch of sound waves, but it stands for something that means something about this beautiful place. So information, what's that? That's energy in formation. It's a formation that stands for something. Then you can say, well, what's energy? And energy is something that a lot of people feel is the essential substance of the universe. When it's condensed, we call it matter, E equals MC squared. It comes in various forms that you can memorize with the acronym CLIF. You know, it has contours, locations, intensities, frequencies, and forms, and other variables we'll talk about soon. So energy, for a lot of people, is the basic issue of reality. And we'll get into that in a deep, deep way soon. So once you say energy, you know, some of it is just pure energy. Some of it, like spirit rock, is energy in a certain formation. So this would be just a way of diagramming that sometimes energy flows through straight if it's the analogy is soapy water. If soapy water is the energy, sometimes the mind functions just as that little, what's it called, little loop, you know, where the bubbles just go through as bubbles. But sometimes you can line the bubbles up in symbols. When you're just letting energy pass through you as energy, we call it being a conduit, like a hose, and you're doing conduition. Sometimes you take those energy patterns and turn them into symbolic values, and that's a constructive process. So you have both conduition and construction in terms of energy flow, whether it's within and between. So that's just to put it there. And the interesting thing about this approach, then, is that 
from the point of view of mind being both within and between, we can embrace that by saying, if the mind is some aspect of energy flow, then that would help us see how the singular essence is not constrained by skull or skin. And we can see the fundamental problem is that people got confused when they put it in one place or the other. Because usually those fields don't talk to each other. They kind of despise each other, actually. It's really sad to see, but usually they're siloed approaches. So in the field I work in, interpersonal neurobiology, we basically say, what if all the frameworks of science were combined into one perspective? And this would be a diagram saying how we see things. So we see that the embodied brain is the embodied mechanism by which energy and information flows within the skin encased body. So we're going to use your body as a spatial referent. And then you have the sharing of energy and information flow is what we call a relationship. So how you treat other species and how you treat plants would be a relationship. It's your relationship with the planet. So by relationships, we don't just mean with people. So if you have a company that is destroying the ecosystem around you, you have a very non-integrative relationship, is the way we would call it. It's leading to chaos and rigidity, as you'll see in a moment, because when these energy flows are happening in an integrated way, harmony is created. And there's differentiation of different species of plants and animals, and the honoring of those differences and linking together in one harmonious system. That's an integrated system that you can see this as a triangle of integration, as you'll see. Anyway, so then we still haven't asked the question or answered the question or tried to answer the question, what is the mind in this triangle? And some people get very upset in academics and they say, it's not possible to have one thing like the mind that's both within and between. And what I say to them is, you're using the skull and skin as an artificial barrier. Energy and information flow is not constrained by skull or skin. And as long as you conceive of it that way, of course, then this is illogical. And it's probably why no one thinks this way. Because they, they, they lock into this Newtonian, classical, macro-state, large-body view that these bodies we have make us separate. When in fact, just beneath the surface, you realize how deeply interconnected we all are. And it's an absolute illusion of our separation. And what happens with that is you come up with a concept like the self is encased by your skin. And that's probably what's killing us on this planet. It's a toxic lie that is embedded in the most beautiful of phrases like self-compassion. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful thing to be kind to your inner experience. But the phrase itself continues the lie and continues perpetuating the destruction because it makes us other. Does that mean when you have compassion for some being in the body that you weren't born into that they're not you? Well, the term self-compassion says, yes, there's self and other. And you might think, well, this is getting ridiculous. Let me go to the other workshop. Um, <laughs> but you heard it was sold out, so you can't. <laughs> but this is, this is where you, like, you wrestle with this whole thing. you know. Okay, so we're now going to explore what the mind might be. And we're going to do that by saying, yes, it's a conduit and constructor. But there are four facets of the mind that we'll explore today. 
which include things you're familiar with, like the reason you can't get rid of the word mind and just substitute for brain activity, no matter what kind of renowned neuroscientist you are, um, is because of subjective experience. And I had the wonderful opportunity to do a whole morning in our annual conference with Antonio Damasio, one of the most revered neuroscientists, who agrees with this, that subjective experience makes mind not a synonym for brain structure or brain activity. And it was this beautiful thing. He doesn't talk about energy flow, but when I finally said, you know, Antonio, are you open to the idea of thinking that the mind could be actually an emergent phenomena of energy flow? He doesn't talk like that. And he took a pause, and I had seen him really attack people on stage with him before when he doesn't agree. So I was going, oh my God, what is he going to say? And he goes, that's a really smart thing to do. And I took a deep breath. Actually, I didn't take a deep breath. I went, whoa, like this. Because nobody talks like this. And in his book, The Strange Order of Things, you could reinterpret very slightly his placing mind in culture as mind is emergent phenomena of energy flow. And he was... After being on stage with him, I can tell you, he's completely fine with that. And the issue then is you get to a very different place of understanding our relationship with other people on the planet. That is your mind. And subjective experience is one beginning of saying that you can't replace the word mind with the word brain activity as is done in contemporary academics and has been done since the time of Hippocrates. 2,500 years. Yikes. And William James just reaffirmed that in 1890 with the principles of psychology, with the birth of modern psychological studies. You know, and that's sad because he had some really wonderful things to say about a lot of things, but to make mind a synonym for brain activity has been a serious, serious error that people get very upset when you say it's an error. And the more diplomatic thing to say is it's part of a larger story. But when they say it's the whole story, then it's an error. Okay, so subjective experience would be the felt texture of life. And how do you know you're having subjective experience? Like if I say ocean waves. How many of you had a feeling of maybe some waves you've experienced in the past? Raise your hand. So that's the subjective feeling that comes up. Of course it might be related to your brain. Of course it is related to your brain. But it's also related to the waves in some ways. But subjective experience is that felt texture. But how did you know when I said ocean waves, I even said ocean waves? How do you know that? Because you have this weird thing, the second thing, consciousness. You have the subjective experience of knowing in addition to the known, right? The known would be ocean waves. The knowing is, I know I heard Dan say ocean waves. Those are distinct things, the knowing and the known, but they're both a part of mind. And yes, they're influenced by the brain, but they're not the same as the brain. If I have a patient calling on a suicidal crisis who's desperate, feeling hopeless, complete despair, no future, feeling of complete disconnection, and they call and I'm on the other line of a suicide prevention service, and I say, you know... I'll bet you your prefrontal cortex is disconnected from the parts of your brain that connected to your brain. They'd kill themselves. 
Because subjective experience is just not the same as brain activity, even if it were 100% dependent on it. Which it may be or may not be. We don't have proof one way or the other. We actually don't. We don't. Is it influenced by the brain? Of course. You hit the brain, you get the brain drunk, you give the brain hallucinogens, you starve the brain, you put a tumor in the brain, you put a stroke in the brain. Of course. The brain is really important. The brain is fascinating and the brain is awesome. No one's putting down the brain. What we're saying is we're putting the brain in context. In our company, we call it minding your brain. You know, because the brain is just one part of a much bigger story. First of all, the brain's in a body. Okay. So consciousness is some amazing, amazing opportunity to know something. So there's the knowing and the known in consciousness. So if people say, what's the difference in consciousness and awareness? Awareness is the knowing of consciousness. And there are also the knowns, right? In consciousness. Okay. But a lot of what goes on in terms of energy flow and its symbolizing stuff is called information processing. doesn't need consciousness. When you dream or, you know, when you're just doing problem solving in your mind, it's usually outside of awareness. Right? Let's have a bless you for everyone who's going to sneeze. You ready? Bless you. Thank you for inviting us to bless you. So now we don't have to keep on doing that. So you, ha- you have this information processing that's outside of awareness. So someone sneezes, I get a feeling inside of me, but I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking, and then that feeling inside of me comes up and says, you really should bless that person, dude. So I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. Let me wait until I finish what I'm saying. Okay, I'll finish. So that becomes like conscious information processing, but it started outside of awareness. And so information processing is also a part of the mind. And these are common descriptions, you know, subjective experience, consciousness, information processing. That's nothing new. The new thing is this fourth facet of mind, which is beyond a description. It's a definition. And it goes back to our earlier diagram and says, look, if the mind is some aspect of a system of energy and information flow that is within and between, what's the characteristic of the system? And the system has three essential properties that, are, that it's open to influences outside of itself. And as I go through these, you tell me whether this relates to you. It's open to influences from outside of itself. And if you feel like you're influenced by things that happen outside of what you call you, only a few people. Anyone else on an open system? Raise your hand really high so we can see Okay, so you're open. Second quality is it's capable of being chaotic. Anybody ever have a chaotic day? I had one the other day. Okay, so you're chaos-capable, open system. And the most important quality is the third feature. You're nonlinear. What nonlinear means is some small thing happens, like, let's say, a flat tire on your bicycle when you're going to go out in the morning for a bike ride with some friends. And that small incident leads to large and very difficult on the surface to predict outcomes. Anybody feel like you're nonlinear? Yeah, okay. So you are a nonlinear, chaos-capable, open system. If you're those three qualities, in our universe, in mathematical terms, you are what's called a complex system. And that doesn't mean it's complicated. It means it has the mathematical qualities of complexity, which is actually quite simple. Really, it's the, the complexity and com- complicated are not the same thing. Complexity is really simple and really beautiful. Really beautiful. It's a mathematical study. From mathematics, you have probability theory. Probability theory, you have systems theory. In system theory, you have complex systems. So when you look at the math of complex systems, they have these things, two things we'll talk about. The broadest thing is called emergence. 
And people hear emergence, if I'm not in California, they go, oh, it's a Californian talking about emergence. And they mock me with it. And I said, it's math, man. It's math. It's not California speak. It's math. Emergence is a mathematical property of complex systems. What is it? The stuff of the system bumps into itself and it interacts with itself and it gives rise to something that's greater than just the stuff that's bumping into itself. That's emergence. It's just a quality of complex systems. They have emergent properties. One possibility is that subjective experience is an emergent phenomena of energy flow. Now, nobody talks like that, but we're going to talk like that. That's the proposal. Consciousness, as you'll see today, may be an emergent phenomena of energy flow. We're going to explore that in the next hour. And information processing, of course, almost by definition, the way we've defined information, patterns of energy that have symbolic value that flow over time. So, of course, information processing is almost by tautology, that is, is saying it, it's an emergent phenomena of energy flow. Yeah, that's what we're saying. But here's the second aspect of complex systems. One absolutely determined aspect of this universe that you live in, when there's a complex system, is something called the emergent phenomena of self-organization. And when I read about this back in the early 90s, 1992, it blew my mind. Because, you know, I was asked to be the training director at UCLA in child and adolescent psychiatry. I realized I was a practicing psychotherapist. No one ever told me what the mind was. And all they had were these ridiculous lists of what seemed like very artificial ways of defining people's problems. And it really made me feel like a, a fake, actually. And so I brought a bunch of my teachers together, 40 scientists, that I'd done a research fellowship and they were my teachers, now they were my colleagues. And I brought them together. It was the beginning of the decade of the brain. I said, let's talk about the connection of the mind and the brain. Everyone's so excited about the brain. Great. What happened to the mind? You know, I'm a psychotherapist, not a brain therapist. So I really wanted to know because I was training all these young people and I thought it was just ridiculous to pass on the same, you know, ignorance that I was taught, right? So... Anyway, I brought my teachers in to, to, so they could teach me and we could teach each other. And, you know, half of them were social folks, like linguistic people and anthropologists and sociologists, and half of them were deep psycho psychology researchers, psychiatry researchers, and brain scientists and some physicists. And it was amazing because they didn't get along at all. <laughs> they, after the first meeting, it was clear they were going to kill each other because, you know, the neuroscientists were getting all the funding. It was a decade of the brain. They had the you know, good view offices kind of thing, you know, in academics. <laughs> the competition is so intense because the stakes are so low, you know, and so you, you have this strange, strange lack of collaboration. E.O. Wilson would write about it years later in this incredible book called Consilience about how university life is some of the most competitive, anti-collaborative, anti-creative environments he's ever seen. So I'm not just making this up. Read Wilson's book, Consilience. But that's what I felt in 1992. I didn't know that. I was just some young kid just becoming an academic. So the bottom line of all that was that what you're about to hear came from after the first meeting. The question was, how could I get these people to come for a meeting after the second one? They agreed to come one more time. 
how can I have them get over their incredible siloed views? It was either relational or it was brain in the head. And they're not going to talk to each other. So I went for a walk on the beach. And, uh, and I thought, you know, if I were in academics, because I love the ocean, you know, I love the coast. And, you know, I grew up on the coast. And I thought, if I were in academics, if I stay in academics, they're going to force me to study either the sand or the water. Like you'll be a sandologist or a waterologist, right? And they'll divide it up. And then, even though I was interested in the coast, they'll say, no, you have to be an expert in sand or water. You choose, man. Choose. And what disappears if you have to divide it up? The coast. The coast (laughs) disappears if you have to do one or the other. Sure, there's a water area and there's a sand area, of course. But the coast is both. So I thought, okay, what if the mind is the same deal? Maybe these are really beautiful, well-intended, really bright, caring people. They are. I knew them. They, They were my teachers. But they really were not getting along. And what if they were both right? What if some were the water folks, some were the sand folks? What if we could bring them together? So then I thought, well, what is the what is this stuff? So when you look at the system, the system then is energy and information flow. No, none of them were talking like that. But I said to them, what if the mind as a starting place could be the following emergent, self-organizing, embodied, and relational process that regulates energy and information flow? Period. So I came in the next week with that definition and we went around 40 academics sitting in this one room. 100% agreement that they were willing to take on that working definition. There were no other definitions so that was a good one to start with. And we met for four and a half years. Four and a half years we met regularly in collaborative, deeply exciting conversations. And once you say that it's a self-organizing emergent process, then you realize skull and skin are not a barrier for that process. And then the exciting thing is all sorts of things start coming up. Like you say then, okay, if that's a working definition of the mind, let's invite anyone else with other definitions, maybe there's a dozen other ones out there, and let's have a fun, respectful debating back and forth. And so I invited other fields to give their working definitions and let's work out another definition together. There was not a single other definition of the mind I've ever found. And I've had students work with me year after year after year looking for none. In fact, the field of philosophy of mind says you should never define the mind. It's an error to define it. Because then you'll limit your understanding if you define it. So I say, yeah, if I'm a philosopher, I would take that stance too. But as a psychotherapist, if my patient comes to me and says, hey, Dan, you're my mind therapist, right? I said, I sure am. I'm your psychotherapist. I'm a psychiatrist. Yes, I'm your mind therapist. And they say, "Um, what's the mind that you're working on with me? And I go, gosh, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) who would continue to go into such a person? So once you say the mind, you would go... Everybody, (laughs) that's right. So once we're out of our mind, basically, mind therapist. So once you define the mind as a self-organizing process, then you could say, what's a healthy mind? And you do some interesting things. And then you go, well, uh, if the mind is a regulatory process, it's going to do two things, and you can strengthen both of those things. Anything that regulates has to monitor the thing and modify the thing. Like when you ride a bicycle. You've got to monitor where you're going and then modify where you're going. And the practice we're about to do, 
You're going to be monitoring energy and information flow and modifying it. You're going to be strengthening your mind with what we're going to do. So the monitoring part is really interesting because you can learn to sense energy and information flow by kind of building a tripod of this mindset lens, this lens that lets you see energy flow where within and between. It's always within and between. And you do this with three O's. You want to be open to what's happening. So like if I'm feeling sad, let's say, and I'm not open to feeling sad, I'm not going to be able to sense my sadness with any clarity because I'm going to push it away. Right? Or if I think being happy is the only thing to be and I'm clinging on to being happy, right? I can only be happy, only be happy. Only... I have a filter that says if I'm kind of angry or fearful, I'm not going to allow myself to feel that way. So I'm also not open because I'm grabbing onto only one thing to be. So you need to have an openness to what is, to see what is. Right? It's like, you know, next week you'll, you'll come, if you can, to hear Byron Katie. And, you know, so Katie has this beautiful way of just asking you to open to what is. You know, the simplest definition of mindfulness I've ever seen uh, is, it is what it is. <laughs> Done. <laughs> That's the deal. But to really embrace it is what it is, you have to be open to what it is. It is not what I hope it's not. It's not what we're talking about, right? So you also have objectivity, which means the knowns of awareness are seen as objects. That's what objectivity means. It means you have a thought, I'm no good. You don't believe it as a truth. You learn to say, there's a thought. It's an object. How interesting is that? You have a kind of coal attitude, C-O-A-L. You're curious about it. You're open. You're accepting. You're loving. And you're challenging it and saying, I see you thought. You're an object of my mind. Very interesting that you come at this moment. You're no good. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. You know, that's what objectivity is. And observation means you're learning to actually cultivate the experience of just being aware, which is what we'll do very soon. And when you cultivate these three legs of the tripod, then you see with more stability. So like if we were taking a camera out in the world and it wasn't stabilized in this way, then what you would get would be very blurry, right? And if you tried to edit it, which we'll do next, the modifying part, you couldn't do that very well. So the first step of strengthening the mind is to strengthen your ability to sense or monitor, right? And in a way, then, that's the first way that you see with more clarity, depth, detail. And you can do something with the thing. And a lot of people have a very unstable mindset lens. So if, at a minimum, today is useful for you to stabilize your mindset lens, that'll be fantastic. So we'll work on that. But then how, do you, how are you actually doing that? You're doing that by basically training attention. And attention is simply defined as that process which directs energy and information flow. It's not the same as awareness, and a lot of people confuse those two terms. It is absolutely not the same as awareness. Attention directs energy and information flow, and if it's with awareness, it's called focal attention. And if it's not with awareness, it's called non-focal attention. And you have attention going on all the time that's outside of awareness. So we should make sure not to confuse those two. But the way we're going to train energy and information flow attentional processes allows us to actually strengthen our minds. And if you like to go to the brain part, it goes like this. Where attention goes, 
neural firing flows and neural connection grows. So that's kind of, I always want to say what I used to say, let me see how many people say it this way. I always would say the secret of the sauce. Did anybody say it that way? The secret of the sauce? No. Oh, man. The secret sauce? Is that what you Who says the secret sauce? Okay. So I was wrong. Okay, I'll accept it. I want to say the secret of the secret sauce is that you train attention. And, you know, that's just one of three pillars of mind training that have been shown to exist. And the three pillars are focused attention, and there's probably others, but these are ones that research has established are very important for creating health in your life. And they are focused attention, which is how you strengthen, how you direct that flashlight of attention. And especially you train it with what you're using, which is awareness. So focal attention is really what you're training. The second pillar is open awareness. So you're going to learn to drop into awareness without directing attention. And that is a huge, huge step. And the third thing is you develop kind intention. So these are three aspects of the mind. One is attention, that process that streams energy information flow with a certain vector or direction. Um, Awareness is the experience of knowing, and so you cultivate a distinction between the knowing and the known with open awareness. And the third thing is kind intention. Intention is kind of this, it's a mental vector. So if you have kind intention, it cultivates compassion and love and care toward your inner and inter-experience. Some people call that loving-kindness practice or compassion practice. Those we're just going to put on the broader term, kind intention, because there's a beautiful, beautiful emotional state that is not captured under the term compassion, which is empathic joy. You know, when someone's successful and doing well, and you're really, really authentically thrilled for their success, that's beautiful. That's called empathic joy. That isn't subsumed under the term compassion, which is about suffering. So empathic joy is crucial. And that's under the general term kind intention. Imagine if we took all the energy we as human beings have that we put into experiences like greed and destructive competitive nature and the way we want other people to fail and took all that energy and put it into promoting the well-being and success and happiness of others in quotes, others, right? Wouldn't that be an amazing world? That's what kind intention is all about. And amazingly, the studies show when you begin to live like that, you're actually healthier. Which is really, really fascinating. So how do you develop these things? Well, interestingly, these three things, I think, are a part of one fundamental process. And there's a long, long story behind this, but I'll just come to the conclusion of it for this uh, workshop, which is it's the process called integration. Integration is where you differentiate stuff and you link them. So like if another person does really well, like a friend calls you and says, I just got this huge research grant and I can't believe $2 million for me to do everything I've always wanted to do. And of course you may have uh, this feeling like you applied, you didn't get it. That's understandable. So you feel sad and jealous and all this kind of stuff. And you take a deep breath. You realize those are just objects of your understandable separate self mind and you let it go, and you realize a human being just wrote up a grant and got $2 million to study something really great in the world. 
So you don't have to feel great if it's like $2 million to study how I can murder people effectively without being caught. So there's no reason you have to be happy about that. But if someone's like doing something positive in the world and you feel happy for that, that's differentiating your different experiences of jealousy within yourself, differentiating your friend who got the $2 million grant, and then generating this feeling of empathic joy. You know? It's like... I was at Esalen just uh, for the last two weeks teaching. And, you know, as happens sometimes at Esalen, you know, I was going to the baths at night and um, I heard this unbelievable music. So I go up to the fire pit and there is this cellist who must have been like, I don't know what he was, like sent from heaven or something. But the cello he was playing was the most exquisite cello and there was a folk guitarist playing and they were doing this stuff and then we all started singing songs together and then when we got to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, it was just too much. Everybody was like melting to pools of tears. And, um, and so we found out this guy had come from Russia. He was a Russian concert cellist. And, you know, Esalen's been in this dialogue to try to create peace between, you know, with Russia and stuff like that. For, for decades they've been doing that. But the, he was part of that contingency. And it was just one of those moments. And I know if I was a frustrated musician, I can imagine I would say, oh, I wish I had continued practicing my ukulele or something like that. Or, or whatever it would have been. And I could have been jealous and had, you know, wished his, his bow would break. Or, you know, you can imagine what distracted me. But instead, here's a human being who has taken his love and the artistry to use this instrument and create this unbelievable way for all of us to join together. And we could just embrace that, right? And so that's what I mean. Now, you could say, no, well, but you would want to play cello like that too, wouldn't you? And have everyone staring at you and saying, you're so great. So that's what I mean about our world. This was one of us. This was us. This is, you'll see, we're going to talk about something called we which is me and we together makes an integrated self, that was Moas playing the cello. <laughs> that was Moas playing the cello. It was beautiful, right? Moas, you know. Anyway, my, my, my interns and I, we have a, this research team going on, so one of them changed the name of our research team to Mwesearch Team. <laughs> and, uh, and we have these weekends where we do this stuff together. It's so fun. Anyway, but when you get integration at the heart of everything, um, you're differentiating and linking you know, through a long line of deep, deep scientific analysis, it looks like integration defined that way, linking differentiated parts of a complex system. Integration defined this way is the basis of well-being. Whether you're talking about an individual's brain or the brain in the whole body or a child in a relationship called attachment or a romance or a classroom or a school system or a community, or a civilization, or our climate and the whole planet together, integration seems to be the base of well-being. It's kind of remarkable. So, amazingly, you have this very simple pathway. When a system is integrated, it's in harmony, and it has the qualities that spell the word faces. This is straight from the math of complex systems. It's flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Faces flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. And, you know, that's amazing because when it's not that way, with that beautiful faces flow, flexible, adaptive, coherent, which means resilient over time, energized, and stable, it moves to either chaos or rigidity. 
So when I said complexity theory and complexity in the mathematics of complex systems is really elegant, incredibly simple, it's this one graph right there. Integration creates harmony. You block linkage and or differentiation, you get chaos or rigidity. It explains the entire field of psychiatric disorders. People who have a psychiatric, serious psychiatric disorder where you study the brain of a number of people with the same disorder, impaired integration, every study that's ever been done. You name the study, I'll show you impaired integration. I work with an eating disorder program in Utah. We did some studies, we haven't published them yet. What's the one finding we found across all the different eating challenges that young women have? These are mostly, almost all women. Impaired integration in the brain. So we do integrative practices to try to get them out of the chaos of bulimia or the rigidity of anorexia. People have been traumatized. What's the main finding? Impaired integration of the brain. What's the main finding with mindfulness research? You grow integrative fibers in the brain. It's absolutely startling. The human connectome project is where you study these subtly differentiated areas of the brain and the head and how they're linked together. So that's called the connectome. So the word connect with the letters O-M-E at the end. Anyway, one of our, we have an online training program. One of our online students called up the office, not even emailed, she called us up. She said, did you see the study that came out this morning? We said, what's the study, what's the study? She goes, the Human Connectome Project published their first huge study across many different centers on the best predictor of every measure of well-being they could find was one brain factor. How interconnected your connectome was, how integrated your brain is, is the best predictor of your well-being and happiness. So she was, I mean, so we were like, thank you, thank you, you know, because we hadn't seen it yet. It just came out that morning. So you have studies of happiness and well-being, integration, uh, impaired well-being, impaired integration, uh, interventions like mindfulness, those three-pillar trainings. What do they do? They grow integration of the brain. And what do we mean by that? We mean just so you can know for your cocktail party tonight when people say, what do you mean by the brain gets more integrated? Here are the four ways when someone challenges you on mindfulness meditation and compassion meditation because some people separate those. Some mindfulness teachers like here at Spirit Rock would embed compassion right into mindfulness and they wouldn't make it redundant like this and say mindfulness and compassion training. Other researchers in meditation say, no, 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 no. Mindfulness is just focused attention training. And maybe a little open awareness, but not compassion training. Make them separate. So you'll see in the aware book, because I work with everyone everywhere, you know, I, I took off the fullness, and it's called mind training. With the three-pillar three mind training, you just call it that, and make everybody happy. So three-pillar mind training would include what some people just call mindfulness, other people call it mindfulness and compassion. But the study of all that stuff, it grows integration of the brain. Here are the four ways you can say that. Here's for the party tonight. The hippocampus, if you take your hand model of the brain, put your thumb in the middle, put your fingers over your top like this, you have a very useful model of the brain. My daughter says never say handy, so I didn't say handy model. Um, and in this hand model, you have the cortex at the top, the, what's usually called the limbic area, which includes the amygdala and the hippocampus, the hypothalamus here in the thumb area. You would have two thumbs to be a perfect model. And then your brain stem, and this is basically you know, 100 billion neurons clustered together in groups and Basically, how the networks function is how the brain is thought to make its functioning turn into mental processes somehow. 
Networks is how we look at it. So there are networks that are quite differentiated from each other. The hippocampus is a very important linking area that takes differentiated networks and brings them together to process memory and emotion. The hippocampus grows with three-pillar training. The corpus callosum links the differentiated network in the left from the differentiated network in the right and links them together. So these are linking fibers for differentiated areas. That grows in three-pillar training. The prefrontal cortex, right here in your cortex, behind your forehead, that's linking widely differentiated networks to each other, that grows with three-pillar training. And the connectome becomes more interconnected with three-pillar training. Those same four ways we describe an integrated brain, which is about function and structure, by the way, two things you can study in different ways, those are the areas that are impaired in developmental trauma of abuse and neglect. And so what we want to do is a study of people who have been abused or neglected and do mindfulness training and see if we can grow the areas when they've been impaired. No one's done that study yet. But interestingly, they're the exact same four areas that are not growing well with developmental trauma. Fascinating. And, of course, the connectome being more interconnected is the best predictor of your well-being. So this is just an amazing moment where when I revised The Developing Mind, which is the textbook that made a proposal about all this back in the 90s, now, 20 years later, with the 16 interns working with me, I tell them, I want you to find a piece of evidence that shows this stuff is not true. And they go, you misspoke. You mean show it's true. I said, no, no, no. I want you to just find one piece of evidence that goes against these proposals, like integration is health. That's outrageous. Show me one, one study that shows it's not true. I go, why? I said, because you can cherry pick and find one thing that supports it here. I want you to find one thing that goes against it. And now we finished the review for the third edition. And so I'm saying it with the robustness of 16 eager young people trying to, you know, be doing their job. And everything I'm saying is upheld. We've, we don't say it's proven, but you say it's supported by tons and tons and tons of science, right? And in, in the series that I edit, that other people write, I've edited 70 textbooks in this field of interpersonal neurobiology that other people write. I've written a couple of them, but mostly it's other authors. It just supports this. So there's literally tens of thousands of scientific you know, papers and peer-reviewed journals that support this. So we're just going to get to the fun part of it all. So when you take all that and then you say, okay, well then, what are we going to do about this? You come to the, the next phase, which is how would you actually modify energy and information flow to create well-being? Because we've been talking about strengthening the monitoring part. Now we're going to talk about what do you do to modify. So a healthy mind would be a mind that's strengthening monitoring by stabilizing the tripod of the mind sight lens and learning to modify how very simple, toward integration, where, within, and between. That's it. A strong mind is a mind that can see clearly and can cultivate integration. Where's the mind? Within and between. What's the mind? It's a self-organizing emergent process that's regulating energy information. Who are you? You are a mui. Seriously. You are not just in this body. Who you are is your relational and embodied experience. And if we can get young people in schools 
to embrace this. And we've tried this on one school so far in New York City. And I just did the commencement address for our first graduating eighth grade class. Yay. And if you sit with these people, as I had the opportunity to do, and hear them do their graduating uh, projects on environmental justice and see the way we've raised these kids from the time they're in preschool to realize that who they are is, yes, the creative energy that comes from this withinness, and they enjoy the withinness of their curiosity, which we've been holding like a candle flame and really trying to keep it alive. Because school can kill that in kids because they think the true path of school is to have the answers and lose the questions. So we just flipped that around. Said our school is all about holding on to the curiosity that drives the questions. The blue school, blue school in New York. Um, and now we're, you know, people are interested in, you know, because now we've done these first eight, well, nine years because we started before that. Actually, more than that, preschool too. So I, it's doable, and we have to just kind of flip things around. So let me stop that blast. Let me check in with your bodies because I have attention excess disorder and I could just go on and on and on. Can we, I, we're going to take a break at noon, which is in an hour. Um, are you okay continuing on or do you want to take a bio break? How many need a bio break? Okay, so just a, just a handful. So let's do this. Take your bio break right now while we take Q&A and then come back like in five minutes and we're going to dive into this wheel practice. Okay, and if you're out in... In uh, virtual land, please take your bio break now, and then let's do a Q&A. And is there a microphone um, around that, that we can pass around? Does somebody have a microphone? Yeah, we got one? Okay, great. So please, let's keep it quiet here, and please raise your hand if you would like a question. Here, Romy, here's a, here's some hands up here. Yeah, can you do the question? Or, I mean, unless it's a private question. Okay, so let, let's, do the, oh, let's do it for everyone. Let's do, it, let's do a question for everyone, because this is a time. Cause, yes, so whoever has their hand up, and here's a question here, too. Yes. Hi. Uh, first of all, it's very notable that you care a lot about how our language um, is symbolizing this information and how when you say a word like energy, for example... Hold the microphone right up like an ice cream cone. Like that? Yeah. Okay. So, so how when you say a word like energy, for example, there is you know, a set of ideas that come up within my mind. Um, so just to make sure that we are both talking about the same concepts, even if the terminology is a little different, what exactly do you mean when you say um, energy flow? Or energy, for that matter. What's that? Your voice. What's my voice? Waves. Waves of what? So when you say energy, you mean the physical construct. Oh, totally physical construct. I am not going metaphysical here. I'm like, we are staying grounded completely in this universe. And I mean literally energy. So in your question, I mean, now we are speaking to each other using two primary ways, but there's probably a lot of other ways too. Sound waves are the movement of air molecules. That's kinetic motion, which is energy. And you're, the photons coming from the sunlight, you know, and, and from these light bulbs bouncing off this body into your retina, in your eyeballs, that's photons. That's light energy. 
So light has these cliff variables, contours, locations, intensities, frequency, and form. The form in this case is light and sound. I mean, literally, it's energy. Now, your question has a really important implication, which I get all the time, which is, Dan, energy is not a scientific concept. You're just like a goofball from California talking about energy like this. And I go, wow, is physics a part of science? And they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, I'm just talking about the physics study of energy. They go, well, why in the world would you evoke physics to understand the mind? And I said, why in the world wouldn't you? And this is where in interpersonal neurobiology, you know, we say all the fields of science can be combined into one framework. And to leave anthropology out from physics makes no sense. And psychology is in there too. Right? So, yes. That makes sense? Good. And the sense-making would be information and the, the flowing of energy in a coherent, integrated way. Making sense is a synonym for integrating. I, I yeah. have a quick question on your previous diagram. Yeah, hold it right up like an ice cream okay. cone. Okay, like a rock star. Okay, I've never like a rock star or an ice cream cone. Karaoke. Um, so in the previous slide where you're showing the brain... Slice. I mean, and you say that these parts grew. Are you yeah. using imaging, some sort yeah, of Yeah, you can do that two ways. Structural growth right. and increased functional connectivity. So you're using functional MRI and like what? So you can do this with functional MRI. Uh -huh. You can also do it with um, other kinds of techniques uh, called diffusion tensor imaging techniques uh -huh. you can do, right? Okay. So you can do that, and you can also do mag, magnetic encephalogram, you can do EEG. There's all sorts of ways of measuring functional uh, network interconnectivity okay. um, with connectome harmonics and stuff like that. There's all, all sorts of ways of looking at both functional and structural uh, differentiation and linkage. So when you say growth, what percentage growth? Or? Different studies, different percentages, but enough statistically to, to be able to publish this in peer-reviewed journals and say this is a cause-effect thing, that the mind training grows the brain. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And there's a great summary of all this in a book called Altered Traits because ultimately what, what you have by Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman, what you have essentially is the intentional creation of a state which, when repeated, becomes a trait because you are growing neural connections with the, with the aphorism where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows because you're actually activating genes to produce uh, all sorts of ways of growing you know, synaptic connections and myelin formation in the brain. We used to think it might be new neuron formation. That's a very debatable issue, so we can just leave that out. But at least you're growing new synaptic connections and you're, growing a my, you're laying down myelin, which makes the functional connectivity among neurons 3,000 times more effective. But you're not, talking about, you're not talking about the actual gray matter? Or something. I'm talking about the gray matter and the white matter. Okay. Yeah. It's, I, I have a question on this side. Hi. Yeah, hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I think that the system works best if you are supportive or in a supportive environment whoever you are working this out with is, or the, the environment that you're in, you're each interested and invested in the success of the other person and yes. the integration of the other person. And 
I think it's very difficult to do if you're in an environment that isn't supporting that sort of growth and success. And my question involves how do you keep your state or grow your state when what is coming at you is the opposite of, of supportive? Yeah, beautiful question and really, I think, very relevant for what a lot of us face on this planet. So thank you. I think the way to best answer that is after we do our practice because there is actually a direct answer to that really important question that will come from your own experience and the discussion that follows the experience. So will you remind me to come yes. back to your question? Thank okay. you very much. We, we will come, so I'm not putting it off. I'm just saying let's do an experiential dive so that the response actually lands in an embodied way with what you experienced. Right. I find yeah. that th this part is beautiful because everyone in the room is supporting everyone in the room. Yeah. And we all need to go outside. Totally. To right. And that's, that's why we have communities and also your social activism. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Let's just do two more questions. And then, so if you're coming yeah. back for your bio break, let's take a seat because we're going to get ready to start the next practice. Dan. Yes. Yes. One, two. Yeah. Okay. And we'll have more when time for questions use, later, too. When you use the word uh, integration, you are me, you are Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein once said, uh, my aim is to take you from a position of disguised nonsense to a position of patent nonsense. Mm -hmm. That the word integration really, to me, as a psychiatrist that's actually done psychotherapy for 47 years, yeah. boils down to the concept of paradox. Yeah, absolutely. Integrating a both and rather than an either or. Yeah, it's I, that's really that beautiful. Simple. I'm with you all the way, and and embracing the the paradox opposites requires a certain um, embracing of uncertainty, which is exactly what we're about to experience. So I, I'm with you all the way, absolutely. And the thing that's interesting about the paradox is when you when you when you look at paradox as integration then you can actually take integration and go not just from the mental experience of paradox and all the ways, you know, like in therapy you might work with that, which is fantastic. You then can say, how do you study integration in the brain, right? Or how do you study integration in a relationship? Like I'm an attachment researcher. And how do you study it, let's say, in our experience of ecosystems? And so you can take something like paradox and then place it into a mathematical frame a very, the deep science of math and see where it fits into ecosystems, sociology, anthropological assessments. You can look at psychological studies. You can look at brain studies. You can go all across these different kinds of sciences with the concept of integration. They don't use that term math, but the idea of linking differentiated parts. And you go up and down, you know, as they say, turtles all the way up and down. Right. And when the, when the Scandinavians say the situation is hopeless but not serious... <laughs> That is a paradox. And paradox is the basis of all profound wisdom. It is also the basis of comedy. And comedy, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I can't wait for you to read the Aware book because you'll see the whole thing, everything you said about the comedy and awareness and all the stuff at Paradox, it's, it comes out in the book, in a, I hope, in a fun way. Yes, one more. There was one more person with the microphone. Or did we do, did we do that right? I said two questions. I want to keep to my word. So we'll just do another one. Who is ever up for the next one? Thanks. And then, and don't, we will have lots of time for questions. So don't worry about 
Oh, I'm standing here, and my question is not well. Hold it right up like an ice cream cone. Okay, I'm standing here. My no, really close like an ice cream cone. Okay. Like that, yeah. Okay, I'm still standing here. And my question is not well formulated. I call myself a business psychologist. For years, I've been working in companies. I have a linguistic orientation, so I just found out how people talked and the relationship part. And it's been very effective. I realize now that I've stopped. I need to talk to you. Uh, I need therapy in the sense of moving forward. I'd actually like to join you in some way. Great. Because the integration for the company just rang a bell with me. And I've read the word. I know the word. All of a sudden, it woke I woke up. Yeah, That's beautiful. The next place. Great, good. Well, we have, you know, we have this 36-hour online program we have. We have immersions you can come do where like-minded people feel exactly like you're describing it, okay. come to create communities of support, diving deeply into the idea of integration. So, you know, c go to our website, and we have a ton of things across all the different dimensions of organizational functioning, government functioning, school functioning, parenting, um, you know, psychotherapy, uh, just general stuffness of things, you know. So come, come, because we do lots of stuff. And you have personal interest in exploring organization. You said you had an organizational piece already. So Yeah, we do. We do. That's right. So come, come to our website and you'll see. There's a lot to do in the world as a community, you know. This is not something any individual can do. We need to work together in this, you know. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for those beautiful questions. darken them. I don't think it's... I mean, I can ask our tech people to darken. Remember, these are all in the books, and, and don't uh, darken them. I think it's about the light. It's, now it's good? You can't see that? Okay. Okay, well, you'll have it in the book. I mean, so it just gives you the feeling for it. I think they're enough for everybody, yeah. Yeah, I hope there's enough. Um, limited edition. It's okay. You can. All right. So here's two. Here are two scientific ideas. And let me just check out with you. Am I, is this going too fast, or is the speed okay? Perfect. Okay. Great. Because I get very excited, and when I get excited, I start talking really fast. So I have to have, remind myself: slow down, slow down, slow down. Um, so if you take two scientific notions and put them together which is one, the one we just talked about, integration is well-being. Super simple, but it comes from a lot of scientific evidence and reasoning. And the second thing is, and this is more informal, but, you know, if you talk about intentional change, like how you help a child grow in a family, you know, I'm a, a dad and I... You know, my wife and I, we raised our kids, or I'm, I'm a, you know, a family therapist, so I help parents raise their kids, or I write books for parenting. You know, helping someone change in a family requires consciousness. And if you, if you talk to teachers, let's say I do a lot of work in K through 12, you know, teachers will say, you know, when you ask them about it, they need consciousness to get their students to change. And of course, in psychotherapy, if you're dealing with paradox or dealing with whatever approach you have, even though there's 500 forms of therapy, you know, they all pretty much involve consciousness. So that's just one of those things that E.O. Wilson would call a consilient finding. That is, across the independent things of education, parenting, and psychotherapy, somehow consciousness is needed for intentional change. So that's just like an observation, you know.
So if you put those two together, you say, well, consciousness need for intentional change. Maybe even, Paul, for um, climate change issues. We have to have some kind of intentionality that, that is uh, r- raising in us where we're actually changing the nature of consciousness itself. So if you think about deep change to protect the well-being of the planet and to foster health, you'd say, well, how, how would we move human consciousness forward? So that's even at the larger human family scale. But even if you talk about the individual person in a body, you know, consciousness is needed for change. So then the question is, what if you put those two things together? Integration is health, consciousness needed for intentional change. And the weird idea came to me back in the 90s was, what if my patients could integrate consciousness? So I took them off the couch and the chair where they were sitting, and I took them around this thing that is this, a table in my office that, um, bless you, oh, sorry, we already blessed you, uh, a table where there's a center glass hub and a, of the table, the center of the table is glass, and the outer part is wood, and I said to my patients, let's integrate consciousness. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, um, integration is the differentiation of stuff and then linking it together. They said, okay. I said, so consciousness can be simply defined as the subjective experience of knowing, and then you've got the knowns. So um, let's put the knowing in the hub. So the hub of this wheel, no one wanted to call it a table of awareness. This hub it would represent, in a metaphoric mapping kind of way, the experience of being aware, and then the, um, the rim represents the knowns. And this thing that holds up the tables looks like a spoke. So we just said, let's call a singular spoke of this wheel. Let's call that the spoke of attention. Right? So then you could link systematically the different elements of the rim, and you differentiate them one by one, and then you'd differentiate them from the hub, and then we would link them together as you did the whole practice. So that's what we're going to do right now. So this is a wheel of awareness practice, and I did it with my patients. They started getting better, and I'm a very doubting person, so I did that for a while. And then I started teaching my students who were therapists. They started doing it themselves, and with their clients, they started getting better. I would say better, reducing anxiety, reducing fear, uh, reducing mild to moderate depression, helping with post-traumatic stress issues, dealing with existential issues, all sorts of things. They got happier. I mean, it was kind of a wild thing. And then I started doing it in workshops. And since I'm a scientist, I did it systematically with 10,000 people, recorded the results. And now I've done it with way over 10,000 people, but I stopped doing the recording. And I have, you know, we just did it, for example, at Esalen. We did it over and over again. And, um, and, and so... Now we're going to do it here, and the results are fascinating. I'm not going to tell you the results. You're going to have your own result, your own experience now. But let me just check out with you. How many of you have done the Wheel of Awareness practice before? Raise your hand really high. Okay, so it looks like just about maybe 10% of us. Okay, so for 90% of us, it'll be new, and that's fine. And I've done this, you know, with people who have never meditated before. I've done this with people who run monasteries. And so I can tell you, this practice is accessible no matter what your background is. Educational, religious, ethnic, gender, age, um, you know, it's accessible. So it doesn't mean it's the same time, you do, do it every time. So I, this is my daily practice, I do this every time. 
Interestingly, it has the three pillars just by good fortune (laughs) embedded in it. So the first two segments of the rim include focusing attention, the first segment on energy flow from outside the body, sound for hearing, light for sight, smell, taste, touch. Those are energy patterns from outside the body. And we'll go through them one by one. So when you're doing hearing, you do hearing. We let go of hearing, we move the spoke over to sight. So you're no longer on hearing, you do just sight. Then we're going to move the spoke over to the second segment of the rim. That's bodily sensations called interoception. In science, we call that the sixth sense. So you have the first five senses. The sixth sense is the interior of the body. Then we'll move the spoke over from the sensations of muscles and bones and genitals and you know, internal organs. We'll move it over to the third segment of the rim, which is the segment that represents mental activities of things like emotions, which of course are related to the body. So don't worry about that. All these things are related to each other, but emotions like fear, or anger, or sadness is a constructed experience. These are, these are basically mental constructions. Thoughts, memories, images, beliefs, attitudes, intentions, longings, desires, all that mental activities, just to keep the numbers going, we'll call that the seventh sense. And then we're even going to move the spoke over to the final segment of the rim, which is, just to keep the numbers going, the eighth sense, our sense of relationships to other people and the planet. And that's a sense of interconnection. One of the most underdeveloped senses we have to the detriment of everyone. And then, if you're up for it, we'll even do this more advanced practice, because this is a workshop at Spirit Rock, where we're going to explore the hub itself. And we'll bend the spoke around. um, And actually aim attention right into the spoke, right into the hub, I mean. And what you'll see is that some people like that image, because this is just a map. And a map is only as good as you keep its limitations in mind. So if you were going from here to Yosemite, and had a map, and on the map are all these beautiful you know, photographs of Bridal Falls, you know, in the winter with these beautiful icicles and everything like that. And then you arrive there and it's the summer and you get really pissed off because Bridal Vale Falls is nothing like that. There's no snow around and you, get, you say, this is not what I expected. So you want to let go of your expectations as best you can. Let go of all your shooting on yourself. It should be this way, it should be that way. And let the map get you there and then drop the map. Because some people say, it's not really like a wheel. Of course it's not like a wheel. It's just a table in my office. You know, of course it's not like the wheel. But it lets you get to Yosemite and then put the map in your pocket and just explore Yosemite. That's the idea of it. So some people don't like the bending around. They prefer to have a retracting of the spoke, the image of sending the spoke out, coming back in. Some people say, I don't want to do that. And they want to leave the spoke in the hub. You may not be able to see it, but there's a little spoke in there. Or some people say, I don't want any spoke. I say, fine, don't have any spoke. It's all cool, all good. So this is a visual imagery that just gets you where you need to go. Okay? Okay, so, so get yourself ready. Make sure your phones are on, off. Um, let's just say a couple of brief things, especially if you've never done a group practice before. When you do an, a reflective practice like this... Um, 
we're so used to being stimulated by input from the outside world that even if you just go to your body, but especially if you go to your mental activities, it can feel really under-stimulating. And so just keep in mind that the monitoring part of this is monitoring your state of alertness. If you're getting really, really sleepy, no one's going to know except you. So if your eyes are closed, and they don't have to be closed, you can open them up, bring light in. That'll wake your brain up. If keeping your eyes open doesn't work, you can do this whole practice standing up. We've never had anyone fall asleep doing the wheel of awareness, not even a horse, um, standing up. So you can stand up. It's totally fine. If you have a bad back like I do, you can lie down up here. It's all good. This will take about half an hour. And the the only thing just to say in a group setting is if you do happen to fall asleep and all that trying to stimulate you and modify your energy levels doesn't work and you do fall asleep, you can always do this from my website, you know, drdansiegel.com, go to resources, and we've had lots of people stream it. We give it away for free, which makes our accountant nuts, but whatever. And you can, you can do it. Um, you can even do it at lunchtime, so you'll know what the discussion is after lunch. Um, but there's one exception. If you fall asleep and you start to snore, it's really, really hard to ignore a snore. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and invite them and give them permission to lovingly and gently wake you up if you're snoring, uh, because otherwise I'm going to have to go do it. Um, so just do that so we can be ready for nice focus of attention. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Very good. So with your eyes open, let your visual attention come to the middle of the room. And if you're watching from outside, you can just picture the room where you're in and just go to the middle of the room. Then let your attention go to the far wall. And now bring your attention back to the middle of the room. And now bring attention to book reading distances if you had a book or magazine in your hand. And notice that you can determine where attention goes. And for this first part of our practice, we're just going to invite the breath to be the focus of attention, and let attention go to the level of the nostrils, just sensing the air coming in and out of the nostrils as you breathe in and breathe out. Notice how you can let attention go to the level of the chest as you sense the rising and falling of the chest in and out. And now let attention go to the level of the abdomen. If you've never done belly breathing, you can put a hand on the abdomen and notice when the diaphragm brings air into the lungs, it pushes the abdominal contents outward so the abdomen moves outward and then when the air escapes the lungs, the abdomen moves inward. And let this outward and inward movement of the abdomen be the focus of attention and let the sensations of the abdomen moving in and out Fill awareness.
Now just let attention find the breath wherever you feel it most naturally, the abdomen moving, chest rising and falling, the air at the nostrils. Pick one of those areas or maybe the whole body just breathing. And just let's take a a moment now and just ride the wave of the breath in and out. And if a distraction takes the focus of attention away from the breath, just gently taking note of the distraction, maybe naming it or not, whatever helps, let the distraction go and return attention to the breath. And let's begin this basic breath practice right now. And now I invite you to take an intentional and perhaps deeper breath. And imagine now the wheel of awareness. And if you'd like to look up at the screen, you can, just to see it one more time. And this is an image you don't need to be able to see in your mind's eye, but just knowing the idea that the knowns of awareness that we'll explore on the rim, the knowing of being aware is represented in the hub. And the spoke represents the focus of attention. And just imagine that you're centered in the hub of this wheel of awareness. And let the breath go so you're no longer focusing on the breath. And imagine now sending the spoke out from the hub of awareness to the first segment's hearing and let sound fill awareness. Now moving the spoke over to the sense of sight, letting light come through closed eyelids or opening the eyelids a bit for a soft focus. Let light fill awareness. Now moving the spoke over to the sense of smell, letting aromas fill awareness. Now moving the spoke over to the sense of taste, letting tastes fill awareness.
Then moving the spoke over one more time to the sense of touch. Anywhere where skin is touching floor, clothing, skin touching skin, hand in hand. Let the sense of touch fill awareness. Now taking a bit of a deeper breath. Imagine now moving the spoke over to the second segment of the rim that represents the interior sensations of the body. So let's begin with the facial region, letting the sensations of the muscles and bones of the face fill awareness. Moving to the top of the forehead. And then the scalp at the top and back and sides where the ears are. And then the muscles and bones of the throat and neck. Then to the shoulders. And then streaming attention down both arms to the ends of the fingers. And now bringing attention to the upper back and chest. And then to the lower back and the muscles of the abdomen. bringing attention to the hip region. And then streaming attention down both legs to the ends of the toes. And now bring attention to the pelvic area. And then opening awareness to the sensations of the genitals. And now bring attention to the intestines deep in the abdomen, beginning with the lower intestines. And then following those digestive system sensations upward inside the abdomen all the way to the top where the stomach rests. Then opening awareness to the sensations of the esophagus, which is the tube connecting the stomach all the way through the center of the chest, up into the interior of the throat and mouth.
And now moving to the respiratory system, starting behind the cheekbones with the sinuses. And then to the back of the nose, and the inside of the mouth. And then down the front of the throat, where the trachea is the tube that brings life-giving air down into the chest as the lungs expand and contract on left and right sides. And now centering attention in the heart region. And then opening awareness to the entirety of the body's signals, the whole of the body from head to toe, these sensations from the interior of the body. Let the whole body fill awareness. And knowing you can always return to exploring the body's signals. And knowing that science has recently affirmed what wisdom traditions have known for generations. That opening to the signals of the body is a deep source of intuition and wisdom. I invite you now to take a bit of a deeper breath. And imagine moving the spoke of attention over to the third segment of the rim that represents our mental activities of emotions, thoughts, memories. All sorts of activities rest here on the third segment of the rim. And we'll do this exploration of mental activities in two parts. First, what I invite you to do from the hub of knowing with a spoke of attention out to this third segment of the rim, I invite you to simply invite any kind of mental activity into awareness. Many things may come, one thing may come, nothing may come, there's no right or wrong. Just invite anything in with a kind of bring it on stance. Just This is the open awareness part of the practice. So unlike a focused attention on the breath or any kind of sensation where you're picking one particular kind of thing like the breath and then a distraction comes, you let the distraction go, return to the breath. Here, mental activities are not distractions. They're just experience. And you invite any kind of mental experience into awareness. And let's begin that part of the practice right now.
And now for the second part of this review of mental activities. Again, inviting anything in, any kind of emotion, image, thought, memory, whatever. This time, I invite you to pay particularly close attention to the characteristics with which a mental activity, let's say a memory, how does it first present to awareness? How does it stay in awareness? And then how does it leave awareness? So here you'll become a student of the architecture of mental life, studying how things come, stay present, and leave awareness. And let's begin that practice right now. And now I invite you to find the breath once again and ride the wave of the breath in and out. And now before we send the spoke over to the next segment of the rim, we'll open to the experience of bending the spoke around or retracting the spoke or keeping the spoke in the hub or just having no spoke to experience awareness of awareness. So whatever visual image works for you with this map, the idea is the same. How to rest in awareness itself and experience being aware of being aware. And let's begin that practice right now.
And now I invite you to find the breath once again and ride the wave of the breath in and out. And now taking a bit of a deeper breath, we'll now imagine sending the spoke out or straightening the spoke out and aiming it toward the fourth and final segment of the rim. This is the segment that represents our relational connections to other people and the planet. And we'll begin by opening to a sense of connection to people who are physically closest to you right here and now. Those immediately next to you in this practice. And then opening that sense of connection further to include all of us doing this wheel of awareness practice here in this room and even in the virtual world of people doing the practice with us together. And then opening that sense of connection further still to a connection to family and friends who are not doing this practice with us right now. And then widening that sense of connection further still to include people with whom we work. our connection to people who live in our communities. Opening to a sense of connection to people who live in our town or city. And then widening that sense of connection further still to people who live in our state or province. And then opening that sense of connection to all people who live in our country. And then widening that sense of connection to include all members of our human family, all of us who share this common home, this precious and fragile planet, We've named Earth. And then widening that sense of connection even further to include all living beings on Earth. And now knowing that science has recently affirmed that the practice of making internal statements of kindness and care, of compassion and love, actually creates positive integrative changes within us and even between us. I invite you to repeat these phrases. I'll say a phrase and then silently in your inner voice, you can repeat that phrase in your inner mind. 
And the phrases go like this. May all living beings be happy. And then you repeat, may all living beings be happy. May all living beings be healthy. May all living beings be safe. And may all living beings flourish and thrive. And then taking a bit of a deeper breath, we'll send similar wishes out to an internal sense of who we are in a more elaborated way, a me or I. And they go like this, may I be happy and live with meaning, connection, and equanimity and a playful, grateful, and joyful heart. May I be healthy and live with a body that gives energy and flexibility, strength and stability. May I be safe and protected from all sorts of inner and outer harm. And may I flourish and thrive and live with the ease of well-being. Now taking a bit of a deeper breath, we'll send those same elaborated wishes out one more time to an integrated sense of who we are. So if integration is differentiation and linkage, an integrated identity would take the I or me inside these bodies we're born into and link them to our relational connections, a we or us. And one way to do that is me plus we equals we. And we'll send these same elaborated wishes out to mwas. And here's how it goes. May we be happy and live with meaning, connection, and equanimity and a playful, grateful, and joyful heart. May we be healthy and have a body that gives energy and flexibility, strength and stability. May we be safe and protected from all sorts of inner and outer harm. And may we flourish and thrive and live with the ease of well-being.
Now once again, finding the breath and riding the wave of the breath in and out. And now taking a bit of a deeper breath. If your eyes are closed, letting them get ready to come open as we bring this wheel of awareness practice to a close for now. Feel free to stretch your arms. Welcome back. What we're going to do next, and let me check um, with any timekeepers. Do we need to to stop right at 12, or can we go to 12.10? Is there a... It's okay? It's okay? Yes, okay, great. So let's do this. It's nice right after a practice like this, just to take a few moments and just rest with what is. And Romy, we're going to extend. Is it okay if we do... You can do whatever you want, Dan. Okay, good. Yay. Is it okay if we do... It's best to have a little discussion now, then we'll break for lunch and then talk about science and things. So let's do this. Um, For the first part of this conversation we're about to have, let's focus on, if you're up for it, sharing any kind of reflections on this practice you just did. And what's helpful is to say, you know, I want to talk about this segment of the rim or this part of the hub or whatever you want to talk about so we know what you're talking about. And it's, I know it's often hard to do with words because it's a non-word experience, but to try to articulate what the experience was like. And those of us who are taking in what you're saying can use this as informational points. And we're going to build what's a sharing of first-person experience called subjective experience with a lot of the um, basically second-person data, which means we're going to take in first-person reports and try to see any kind of patterns that arise. And then after we do that as a, as a group, and depending on your hunger levels, we'll either we'll have lunch or not, but, but at some point after that, we'll then go to the next phase of our discussion, which will be, is there a scientific view that helps take the first-person subjective experience you have with the wheel and illuminate a possible understanding of the nature of consciousness itself. And then once we develop that framework, we'll weave into that um, the 10,000-person study data, which I'll summarize for you. Um, And then we'll talk about how... The third thing we'll talk about is how do you apply the lessons from the wheel the lessons from your own personal experience, from the study, and this new framework you'll hear about in your everyday life. And then we go to what, midnight tonight, Romy? (laughs) Yes, no, what time do we go to, actually? 4.30, excellent. So that'll give us lots and lots of time to take this thing. How do you take this framework and actually use it in your life? That sound good? So we have a microphone. We have two microphones, right? So if you are up for sharing, um, please um, take the microphone again. Use it as an ice cream cone. It's a directional mic. uh, And um, please share with us. I don't like microphones, so this is creepy hearing my voice. But um, um, I 
I was curious if you could speak. No, if you don't, you, people. Okay. There you go. Oh, yeah, see what I mean? The difference. <laughs> um, for the f focusing your attention on awareness part. Um, yes. My my thought went like, well, isn't that what we're doing when we're meditating? Is focusing our, on our awareness and having awareness of our awareness. Um, and then I was just confused as to how we would take that to another level of awareness of our being aware of awareness and meditating. So I was wondering if you could speak on that so I could... I'll come to that later, but what, so when that part of the practice was there, what was your experience? Um, like, how do I do this right? Okay. <laughs> so, you, so you had a thought come up, how do I do this right? Aren't we doing this anyway? So you were focusing on the contents, the rim elements. That's a thought, a question, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. then I was noticing that my attention was on a, th a thought and then it was on a bodily sensation and then and then I'm like are, are we trying to have all of these sensations happen at once yeah exactly aware so of all of them at once thank you for sharing so uh, you know mostly what I'm gonna do is just thank you for sharing and we're going to come to that later but I'll just reflect to you that um this part of the practice from what people have told me you know is one of the most advanced, well, certainly it's an advanced stage of this practice, for sure. And, and sometimes if I do like a, a long three-day workshop, we don't do that until like the day two. But this is just a one-day thing, so we just did it. Um, and so it is the most challenging uh, stage. And for people who run monasteries, they've told me it's the most advanced practice they have in their monastery. So, you know, that being said, since I've done this with so many people, there are people who've never meditated before who have the experience that, I mean, we'll see what people's experience was like, but we'll talk about that. But so you're not alone. It's a very, very common thing for people to stay with the contents of awareness rather than just awareness itself. That's very, very common, especially the first time you do it. And then as you practice more, that shifts in a very big way. And that's what we'll talk about. Yes, thank you. And... The person with the talking stick, you will uh, remind me of your name. Yeah, Sushila. She will be the one in charge of picking who gets. So you see lots of hands over here. Are there any hands over here? Maybe it's just this side. Okay. Uh, we have two mics, so we'll go back and forth and back and forth. And what's your name? Lori. Lori. Okay, great. Is there a mic over here? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, towards the end of the exercise, in the aware of awareness, yes, I uh, noticed I have recurrent mental patterns, sort of recurrent thoughts, uh, similar, you know, patterns. So uh, I was noticing those patterns. I got some freedom from them because mm. I wasn't into them. I was sort of noticing them from a distance. Can you, can you tell us a little, what, what did that feel like to notice them at a distance versus when they're up close? Well, what it was did, free right? of them, so there's a feeling of freedom. Like, I'm not bound by these. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not absorbing my whole mind. Mm -hmm. there, so there was a freshness and a uh, sort of a spaciousness. A, spa a freshness and a spaciousness, and that was at the time of bending the spoke around? What, what part of the practice did you feel it that? It was the aware, the aware of awareness. Yeah, th that part. Okay, great. Thank you. And we'll come... We're going to take in all these as important data points and then talk about them in great, great, great detail soon. So 
my not responding is just that I'm, we're all registering them and we're going to build a whole uh, set of things. So thank you for sharing. Yes. So when we were doing, uh, we were up in our head being... You experienced it up in your head? I experienced being up in my head and all the parts of my brain kind of waking up that I never feel. And, and at what point did you start feeling your every part of your brain waking up? That I you think it was feel? right after we did all the body, the inner body awareness. Uh-huh. We went up the spine, and then I went up further. Okay. And it expanded me tremendously. And how did that expansion feel for you? Uh, it felt great. I was aware of where I hold blocks in my body. I was just aware of a lot more, and mm-hmm. it was very gentle. Wow. Awareness. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Well, looking at the wheel. Hold it right up there. Looking at the wheel and uh, noticing the five senses was easy. The bodily sensations, the bodily sense, good. Uh, looking at the wheel, the five senses were easy. The bodily sensations were uh, easy. And then I got all of a sudden, I could feel myself going into the center of the wheel. And the more that I got into the center, the more abstract things became. To, became. And I think the, uh, the part that, um, that I had the, I won't say the most difficult, but that I had the most awareness with uh, is uh, when we were doing the whole body I mean, being aware of the whole body uh, and having uh, all of the senses and everything coming in on that. So it was like, um, it was like the chaos, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in my life was starting to show up mm. in, my, in the inner circle. Mm. And uh, looking for spokes on to just kind of like to give the chaos some, uh, oh, let's see, uh, some um, chaos can't have continuity, but anyway, some way out or organ it or trying to bring it together. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's so for me in life. To, so, to do one thing at a time? Yeah, mm-hmm. that, I, that I take on so many, I have so many things going all at one time mm-hmm. and all of the chaos and everything. Yeah. But, um, and... But it was really uh, a big awareness to see all of that happening together. Mm-hmm. And so great, anyway. Great. Thank you. Can you just address, you said one thing was uh, after the body, things became more abstract. That, yes. That, can you share with us, how would you try to put words to what that feels like when you said it became abstract? What, what did that feel like? Yeah, that uh, confusion. Confusion, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the abstract was was the part that I couldn't get a hold of, really. Mm-hmm. So the abstraction was what, th- there was no handle to it. There was no way to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was just the, the results of it. Which were what? Which the- were the chaotic thinking and the energy... Uh, just a lot of energy that was started to flow with it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and, that, and when did that happen with the, which part? It happened when I was, uh, let's see, th- through the abstract, 
which which part of the awareness of the abstraction? Yes. Which part of the wheel practice? Oh, the, you, the part. Of, oh, oh, very, very definitely toward the inner. Very definitely. When we were looking at the hub. Yes. Toward okay. The hub. Yes. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yes. We'll just go back and forth and back and forth. Yes. I had a question about the phrases, the yes. loving, loving kindness. Phrase. Yes. I'm actually studying to teach mindfulness and loving kindness. Oh, in great. A teacher training program, but. Um, one of my challenges in actually trying to do the, the phrases is when I'm doing it for myself, this other voice goes, who are you talking to? Like, it, I connect it with some metaphysical thing, like I'm, I'm talking to invisible beings or I'm trying to do some magic thing. But when the phrase is for other people, I can very quickly, like, that's such a co- my common human experience. I actually do wish other people... Mm-hmm. So, what do you uh, recommend for... This isn't the time for questions, uh, but, but tell us what it felt like for you when we did the part where I, you know, all living beings, and then you shifted to an I, and then a we. What, what did that feel like for you? And then we'll come to questions later. Yeah. Uh, the, the I was... I was just trying to figure out what am I doing saying this, like... So another thought came in yeah. challenging you. Like, when you say, I, was, what am, what I wasn't connecting to what I was doing. Uh-huh. It, I was trying to follow the instruction, but I wasn't connecting to it. But where when what we did went that to fe- we, yeah. I was connecting. So we felt connecting. Yes. Okay, so there's a yeah. big difference. The same statements, but one was may I, the other was may we. What did, what did the we feel like inside of you? Connection. It felt connected? Connection, yeah. And, and can you say a little more than connected? It felt, the we, start with the me. It felt like connected, like, and? Um, I was getting a lot of images. Mm-hmm. I, uh, my imagination and mental process was connected mm-hmm. with, um, you know, the people, the animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that felt somehow imagery was there and hold it and then when it was just i may i be all those things right what does disconnected feel like um i my way of connecting to that is when i is to feel i'm on the receiving end of that but sending it to myself like saying that to myself may i be i guess it's the way i process you know when i'm talking i'm talking to somebody so (laughs) That's just my mental weirdness. So the way it, so, I process instructions. Like so this. just to just to finish, well, I don't mean to keep on <laughs> asking about this, but what does it feel like when you say it didn't feel connected? Can you describe what that felt like? I, when I say "May I be happy," it's like um, uh, "May I have a glass of water?" I'm I'm talking. It's a communication, but communication to what? Okay, so it feels like it feels confusing. It sounds like yeah. Okay, yeah. Great. Okay, so we'll we'll come back to that. Okay, see. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yes. My experience was that it was just really fun to do that. It was really enjoyable to do that, and I felt like I was noticing between what I'm watching and what I am during the experience. And what was there a particular part where it felt like what you are and what you're watching? I just felt like being able to sort of shift between these different different kinds of things of focus helped mm-hmm. me to see that they're really there, mm-hmm. what they are, as opposed to just sort of experiencing them as sort of me and this being. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And then what was it like for you to do the, the exploration of the hub? Well, that's, the, the hub really felt like I could sort of start to see the difference as I was doing that. Because I kept going, the spokes were sort of pointing out at the things I'm watching. Uh-huh. And what did the hub feel like? The hub feels like energy. Me. And what does that feel like? I know this is hard because these, these are words and they're so Well, I was just noticing that the hub is bigger than my being. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And when I, even there was noises in the rooms and things going on, I could almost feel this was sort of like waves connecting with me. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this side? Yes. So I had an interesting experience in the mental activities. Hold it down a little bit, Mike. In the mental activities yeah. part of the hub. Uh, as a young kid, I had polio, and so that's been, uh, so I, I invited the sense of sadness around that in, uh, and then uh, it's, it's a subject on which I've done a lot of work over the years, and you've gotten to the point of, you know, processing the sadness, and then getting to the point of gratitude, but the thing that I'd never experienced before that came to me this time was just, a, uh, and it came in unbidden, was joy, uh, mm. the joy that that is part of what made me who I am. So it's pretty wild. Wow. Can, can you share with us, this was in the part where you were exploring mental activities, that part? And how, can you share a little more about what, what did that feel like when the joy came up? At what? Uh, it was hard to keep quiet. I mean, it was I hard to keep quiet? I wanted to shout, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. But it was, there was definitely a, a, a huge energy flow, mm-hmm. a lot of tingling throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, so what stood out for me most was when you did the like the bodily sensations, but when you went back up through the body into like the deeper areas that I've never really explored while meditating. And that brought me to like a way deeper meditative state than I've really ever been to. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've had way more anxiety than normal. And so when I reached that state, I like was able to see my, like really notice my internal dialogue and like, like see it as something outside of myself. And I noticed that there was a conversation within myself that was saying like, should I be afraid right now? Like, am I going to fall over? Like, and then my body like jolted a little bit, but then I like made the conscious choice to not feel anxiety in that situation and just stay with it. And so it was pretty profound. Wow. Well, yeah. and th- how do you feel now in terms of the, I mean, I don't know if people can see your face, but it, it's, it seems very glowing about, you know, at this moment, what did it feel like to just have that relief from the that um, anxiety? It, it, I don't know what it, feels like but it made me realize that I do have that choice in everyday life mm-hmm. and that if I more so notice that internal dialogue that I'll be able to make that choice rather than just falling into default anxiety mm-hmm. beautiful thank you thank you thank you for sharing yes this side yes hi Hi. I think the easiest way to say this is just that I felt the most mental during mental activities. 
You f so share, share with us what does it <laughs> Meeting, mean to feel like, mental? Crazy. Um, so I went. So I had a great meditative experience with all the and ability to focus on like the five senses and the bodily sensations, etc. Mm -hmm. And similarly to what that woman over there just said, I had some anxious thoughts going on before we did this exercise that when you said move to mental activities, I was kind of like, oh no. <laughs> and then it came in, like it, but it came in differently. It, the anxiety and the thoughts just were kind of, um, I was aware of them and observing them a little bit more, which was a relief to realize that space. So, so you shared with us two things. Well, I mean, that seemed the paradox. I mean, one, you said it was kind of a relief, but the other, you kind of made the joke that you felt <laughs> mental during the... Right. Meaning, so can you help us understand that yes. contrast? Yeah, yeah it, I think it, because I felt so good and relaxed and peaceful during the first few segments, mm -hmm. um, I, it's like I kind of felt my craziness coming on when you said focus on your mental activities. Mm -hmm. And then there was a way of noticing. The relief part was that there was a way of noticing, ah, this doesn't feel the same as when I was feeling anxious before we started this. Oh, like I, I can, see. Now I can sort of get some space from the actual feeling of that. Even though it came up for a second, I could move it out along with sort of the thoughts that were spinning around mm -hmm. prior to doing the exercise. And that sp what did that space feel like when you say there was more space? Can you try it to describe it? felt a lot more peaceful. And more felt, peaceful. Yeah, freeing of bad stuff. Great. Okay, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Thank you. Now, how many more people want to share? Because I just want to get a sense of timing. So one, two, three, four, five. Okay, great. That's wonderful. So let's do, you have like a deli. Let's do five. One, two, three, four, five. So who's one over here? I think there were three. Yes. Oh, good. Great. Okay. Uh, so what was different for me was this time I was able to become aware of something I've experienced before. And that was when you came to the part about being aware of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, when I was, it was like a state. Hold it right up here so everyone can hear you. It was, it was like, a, okay. When you mentioned to be aware of awareness, I had, I've had that happen before. But today, what was different was as I was doing it and coming out of it, I was aware that what was feeling in that state was there was no name. So like when I was looking at the statues, it was like um, a feeling of awareness or just a, it was like a feeling or a buzz in the body, but a buzz here. And there was, at the time I didn't think of it, but when I came out of it, I was aware, oh, I didn't, didn't name anything. Mm. I was just here. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't in that state. I wasn't naming the trees mm -hmm. or anything. And so it happened again a few minutes ago when the trees started waving. Um, I caught myself almost like the best I could say was like feeling the wave of the tree without mm -hmm. thinking, oh, the tree is waving. Mm -hmm. so, so can you share with us a little bit, what did that feel like when you were, and this was in the, when you bent the spoke around part? Uh, or, well, I didn't actually go through a bending. When you said aware of awareness. Yeah, or oh, that part, yeah. Kind of. Um, Just that part. So 
can you share with us a little, what does that feel like to just experience the no naming? Can you say a little more yeah, about that? I, I've had that happen before, but I never thought of it this way. I wasn't, that, that's where the awareness expanded today. Mm-hmm. Was, it was like time stood still. And like time just, stood still. Yeah, and so you just you feel connected. You feel energy like flowing, mm-hmm. but you feel um, like time till still. Yeah, you know, that's how I would put it. Like it was almost like slow motion or something. It's hard yeah. to describe, yeah. but it, I could actually feel more energy. My mind was clear. My mind was quiet. And at the time, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, I'm not naming anything." Mm-hmm. It was like as I kind of. And the other thing I noticed is in that state, sometimes I would notice the noise back here, but then I, or I would notice my breath. But then I, so it was kind of like little things with like little glimpses of it, things, and then come back. But it wasn't like, you know, drawing me away. Yeah, great, great. Thank you. Thank you. So that's one, two. Hi. Hi. So I wanted to mention um, that I feel like I'm witnessing more and so someone else mentioned that so you could put two data points Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this witnessing feeling that I'm witnessing yeah but what I wanted to talk about is feeling was uh, vulnerable and afraid because I'm very sensitive to the everyone sitting around me now Mm -hmm. when you said feel the person next to you or the people Mm -hmm. in your circle and then spend that out and then listening to everyone telling their stories um, during the meditation, after, I mean, since I walked in the room, you know, you become, I feel that I become more vulnerable mm-hmm. when I'm aware mm-hmm. because everyone is spinning in all these different speeds and having all of these different experiences. Mm-hmm. And when my awareness becomes more clear, I'm more susceptible to what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's pretty common, but nobody talks about it. That's my guess. That feeling of the vulnerable. So if you weren't going to use the word vulnerable, and just put that word aside for a moment, when you say, when I'm more aware, and you're using the word witnessing too, so we want to see what that feels like. What, say, can you say a little more about those two things, witnessing and you're using vulnerable, but without using those words? Okay, so witnessing meaning I am experiencing, I'm feeling, I am sensing others' feelings. I'm sensing what they're feeling. I read their facial expressions and it makes me feel fear or it makes me feel compassion, mm-hmm. depending on what they're how you know what mm-hmm. the messages are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the witnessing. Luckily, I, um, I've been working on this for a while so it doesn't give me the level of fear where you know I'm running for the door yeah but I mean I I think that consciousness prevents people from sometimes being as aware as they could be because mm-hmm. of so, that fear so of when being you, affected. right so when you use the word witness it sounds it, it help, help me help us understand this it sounds like you're, you're more receptive to stuff happening not like you're a distant witness Saying, "Oh, I'm here just witnessing this." Is that what well, you mean? I'm working you mean, on that. <laughs> but I mean, you, but it sounds like you're receptive to what's going on. You're more present. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, okay. you have to find a balance there because otherwise, you know, you're sucked into what other what ha- what's happening to the people around. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so there's fear of doing of of, of falling. So there's like you're asking to, about feelings. It's mm-hmm. like a, a yeah. fear of that. There's a fear that comes up. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So that's two, three. Yes. 
Well, when I share what I'm going to share, you're probably going to tell me I need a lot more than your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it kind of builds on the last few people that shared. Um, I mean, I definitely feel a lot more aware over the last few years of some things that have happened. And I'm was trying to learn and study that on my own and kind of a lot of what was just shared. I sense a lot from energy from other people and I'm kind of in that mode of like, I really don't want that energy. So I restrict it and I feel it in my body mm-hmm. and in, with tension typically in my back. Like, I'm clinching, like, ooh, I don't want that, or resisting what's going on in my life rather than allowing it to just flow. So what was very interesting with this um, practice was when I got to the bodily sensations, and I was sitting there trying to relax, but I was still so clinched. So when I put my attention on the tension, like, the deep pain, the events that I was like suppressing started to come up. Yeah. Like dramatically, you know, so I had to lay down and I kind of checked out, to be honest. I kind of missed a lot of the rest of the practice. Mm -hmm. Like I was hearing it, but I wasn't like doing it. I wasn't like an active participant. But what was interesting is when I sat up, like all the tension was gone. Mm -hmm. But As people talked about their peaceful experience, mm-hmm. I started to clinch again because I was like comparing myself mm-hmm. to that. Like, I want that, mm-hmm. but I don't have it yet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, good. Thank you for sharing. But you could see in the experience of being open to what happened and being aware of these painful memories which sometimes does require other things than just a meditative practice, you know, psychotherapy and stuff like that for any of us, uh, including, you know, I had a trauma a long time ago that doing a practice like this brought it up and I had to go get my therapist to work on some issues. Um, And that's a very natural, healthy thing to do. And if the wheel brings up stuff of chaos or rigidity, then it's a good invitation to try the practice some more and then see if that would be helpful. In this practice, you could feel the tightness in your body got relaxed um, when you could just be with something and realize you're okay. Because no matter what we've been through, no matter what it is, you'll see in a moment, we'll talk about that, there is this incredible relief just around the corner and in a way that uh, we'll talk about very soon. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. That's three, four, and then where's five? Oh, five. Okay, four and five. Yes. Hi. Um, Hi. I had a question or curiosity during the interconnection part. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly what you said. I think you said feel the connection to others around you. And it just kind of came up of like, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm interested in that. Like how, you know, like I can bring... I'm used to practices where it's like bring people to mind mm-hmm. and that feels clear, but like, what does it actually feel like? How do I actually feel the connection? I'm not sure. What did, w- yeah, what did it feel like when you did this practice? It felt like, huh, I don't know what that, fe- I mean, that was, it was a thought. It was like, so a thought how do came I in. feel that? Yeah. What does it feel like? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, 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 so sit down for a moment, and you see the person sitting right in front of you? Yeah. yeah now close your eyes, and whatever it means, having an image of her, or, you know, can you feel her presence there? Yeah, I can, okay. but I'm, what I'm interested in is... The no, no, don't, I don't want your interest. You, you, <laughs> see, we're talking about a constructed interest and questions that we all have, thoughts and stuff. Right. But this is a conduit thing. And see, but see, what I don't... Can I just say what I... Sure, of course. I mean, <laughs> what I don't... How do you feel the connection part? You have, a, you have a lot of constructed questions, which are great. I do too. I have a big, I have an incredibly constructive questioning mind also. And I just want to point out that literally when you look at brain studies, the part of our brain that constructs questions shuts off the part of our brain that allows conduition of sensation. Yeah. And so it's, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But so when I'm, what we, this little teeny exercise we just did now was just to say, could you feel it? You could. Because it's just a conduition. I think what I'm trying to point to is like... Okay. I no, no, please go ahead. Go ahead. I, what I was trying to point to is like I can feel like someone... I still feel the separateness, I guess is what I'm saying. Like it feels separate. Like I don't feel the connection. I feel the... I feel another, but it feels separate. And I'm okay. interested, like, so that's where I'm saying I'm interested, but, like, what does the connection feel like? Right. How do and we bring my attention to the connection? Right. And that sure. is only something sensing it right. can answer. Right. And it won't be a statement with words. Right. But I wanted to just say that's what I'm... That's what your experience was. You had a lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. Right? Am I, am I hearing you right? Sort of. Oh, then say then say more. Go ahead, say more. Um, I mean, I think I'm just I'm wondering how that feels like, and I just wanted to bring that up. Like that, that's an, a place for for me to explore in the practice. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a really great question. In fact, in the book, because it's not really clear for a lot of us, you know, what it is. Is it like a memory? Is it an imagined connection? Is it an actual connection? We don't have an answer to that. To come, and this wasn't a time to ask, address questions, but we're at the end. I'll start with that. You know, we'll get into that in a moment. What does that actually mean? Are you just imagining it? And and um, and this great question you're asking really brings up this difference between you know a thought or que- you know with words and an actual just experience of a sensation. Right? And so you can walk through a forest and you can go, Dan is walking through a forest. Isn't this good? I've heard it's good for people to walk through nature and right now I'm with nature, aren't I? Yeah, I guess I am. There's a tree, there's a tree. And I can do that. I can do that. Or I can be in the forest and realize I am the forest. And realizing it means it's the realization, the making real of that reality and then there's a dissolution of this feeling of a separate self an entirely separate self. And then it's just a feeling of like that, you know. And But I can think myself out of that. Like, go, oh, wow, Dan is here, and he should be here. This is good. Being in nature is supposed to help with attention issues or whatever I, I say to myself. And so, so part of it, of this eighth sense, is exactly what you're beautifully pointing out. We rarely ever develop it in our culture. We rarely do. And so to even put it on this wheel... 
in our culture, we'd say, that's kind of nutty. What is that? Just some kind of weird California <laughs> kumbaya thing, you know. And, and, but I actually think, and as you'll see in a moment, when you think about energy fields, we are those trees. And I'm not just saying that like to be kind of whatever, poetic. Those trees are an extension of us. They are us. And as long as we continue in this cultural view where we're taught from the time we're babies, Dan is in this body, you're in that body, and we're kind of separate, we're separate from each other, we're separate from the trees. Absolutely, it's a really natural question. What does that mean to be really connected to the trees? And in fact, who cares? Let's poison them, let's cut them down. I don't care, it's not me. After all, it's a tree. Who cares about a tree? Or you're not my race. I'm a, you know, all these ways... Even little babies at 18 months of age, they start figuring out who's like them and not like them, and then they make a separation. So it's a natural thing in our human bodies to do that. So we have to kind of deal with that and fight against it. But let's, we'll come back to that very soon. But thank you for the question. Thank you for sharing. And our last one, and then I need to check in with you about next steps and timing. Yes? Okay. Um, I'm sort of a, a, a spiritual omnivore. A spiritual omnivore, okay. Yeah, in- Great. In different times of my life, I've been involved with teachings that have specified, uh, been organized around one or more of these types of meditation experience. So uh, the bodily sensations, that's like a body scan, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the different types of attention to the senses. There's a part in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that talks about that mm-hmm. and different kinds of concentrations. The relationship to people and planet, that's metta. Uh, you know, uh, the, and in general, the four types of things around the rim are, Jack discusses in one of his books, uh, Four types of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, emotions and the feelings, thoughts, and then mindfulness of mindfulness, mm-hmm. which is like the pure awareness. Mm-hmm. So what's been different is to find one practice that puts all of these together. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I'm interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. And that's what this does. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just uh, you know, checking in intellectually. Yeah. Uh, what in, was your experience doing? In terms of experience, uh, what I've been experiencing a lot in my meditation. No, this meditation today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also in my daily practice is interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. So the sense that. I'm conscious not only of myself, but if I close my eyes, I can feel or sense the people in this room, the land around us. Oh, right there. The land around us, the, you know, the, this corner of the earth. It's mm-hmm. sort of my awareness expands, and, and can, I feel that. Can you share with us, especially given the last question, what, I know it's hard to put to words, but what does it feel like? When you say, I feel the interconnections, what, what does that feel like? It feels like, uh, like I'm a part of it, is, mm-hmm. is one thing. And the second thing is uh, the 
the Buddhists call it metta, uh, a feeling of appreciation and love mm -hmm. for all of this. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and we'll respond to a lot of the elements of your question soon. And so thank you. And thank you all for sharing. Let me check out your biological needs. And let me just give you a frame for the rest of the day. And the issue really, the question really is about the timing of lunch. So this is great to do the sharing. And what we're going to do now is take these statements and then weave it together with a kind of a scientific perspective that... If you can wait for lunch, you can then have discussions over lunch about this wild thing we're about to talk about. Or if you're really anxious to have lunch and your body wants lunch now, then let's stop for lunch. And how much time do we need to give for lunch? An hour? An hour? So we could just come back at 1.30 and dive into that stuff now. Because if you're hungry, it's no good talking about this. So I think we should break for lunch unless people... Is that okay? All right. So let's break. It's, right now it's 12.35. So let's come back exactly at 1.35. What time do you want the bell to be rung? And the bell will be rung at 1.30. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.